Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show, brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. You're not going to be in a great mood this evening, especially if you're being load-shared. ESCOM confirming at 10 to 6 this evening that it is load-shedding in some areas. If you'd like to tell us where you are being load-shed, and we can, if you're on your way home, perhaps we can give some advice and some guidance. Do SMS on 31702 and 31567, or give us a call and tell us what it's like living like it's 2008 all over again. Lots of um, allegations today of intimidation and clear indications of intimidation where coal trucks haven't been able to get to power stations, where people haven't been able to get to work even if they've wanted to get to work. Threats. Uh, Intimidation. Very, very much an order of the day today as a core group of people who claim to work at ESCOM have gone on strike and have prevented others from doing their their, their national duty, if you like, uh, and that is to keep the lights on. ESCOM pulling the plug today on some areas. Kulupasiwe standing by to talk to us. He's a spokesperson at ESCOM. Coming up in the next half hour, your chance to win with Cruxland Gin. I've got a gin hamper for you. It'll help stave away the cold and it'll help uh, improve your mood if you are feeling load shedding this evening. Your chance to win a Cruxland Gin hamper with 2,000 Rand courtesy of 702 Cape Talk and Cruxland Gin. Unearth the freedom of the Kalahari. So what I've got for you this evening is a fastback question which goes like this. The man who created M&M's was allergic to what? There was a man. He created the lovely bag of M&M's that you might like to treat yourself to as a snack from time to time. But he was allergic to what? That is your fast fact question this evening. Tonight, I need a third answer correct. That'll win the hamper. Why third? Well, gin has got three letters. J E N. Three letters. 31702-31567. The third person in with a correct answer, please, on what the person who created M&M's was allergic to. You'll get yourself that lovely hamper of Cruxland gin. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. Well, let's talk about load shedding this evening. ESCOM confirming that it has gone down the load shedding route uh, this evening. Kulu Pasiwe, spokesperson at ESCOM, you've pulled the plug. Where exactly, Kulu, have you pulled the plug in South Africa's load shedding schedule? Well, in terms of how we work, so because our, our power system is interconnected, so what we do is we instruct municipalities to implement load sharing, and therefore it will be incumbent upon municipalities themselves to decide as to which areas, according to their schedules, will be affected at what time. Okay, so if anybody's trying to figure out the load shedding schedules, because we are out of practice, thank goodness, after years of relative stability of the power system, um, where are people going to find out information as to whether or not they're due for a shedding? So people who live within uh, the 702 land area, um, they should check on the uh, City Power website. And also those who are supplied directly by ESCOM on the ESCOM website, um, there's also an app which ESCOM has created, which can show which particular areas will be affected. I must say at this stage, though, uh, 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 Bruce, that 
during the course of the day, people in Rivona have been having their own battles with uh, electricity supply there. The problem during that time was uh, that uh, some of our colleagues were switching off uh, uh, um, mini substations there, causing a lot of havoc. Obviously, as you no, know, no, hold on a second. You, you, you're gloss, glossing over it. Some of our colleagues were switching off the power. They were sabotaging your network, right? Well, 100%. This is exactly what we call it, sabotage. And just to expand on the sabotage theme, uh, Bruce, in, in one area in, in, in Pumalanga, one of our colleagues had gone into a, a, a mini substation area and then they open up their thing as they normally do when they go to check if uh, everything is still okay there. But what he did was to uh, remove the padlock that is used so that it can only be used by ESCOM people. Remove the padlock, put his own padlock, a private one in other words, so that uh, the people who are going to attend to this particular area will find it difficult to access the area and they had to call in other people who, who, who had to come in to break that padlock. So clearly this are a deliberate act of sabotage and we are hopeful that uh, um, the South African police and other law enforcement agencies will also play their part. But from our end, obviously, it's our responsibility where possible to identify people who are doing these things so that they can account. I mean, will people be fired for doing this? Is there a, is there a provision in the terms of employment of people who work at ESCOM saying, if you deliberately sabotage the electrical grid, you get your finger stuck into a plug when the power is on, you get fired, whatever the case might be? This is beyond ESCOM now. Remember, all of our, all of our facilities are national key points. So anyone who meddles or tempers with the, these facilities essentially is breaking the company's laws. So clearly, uh, this is higher than ESCOM, and I'm sure um, uh, uh, the national energy regulator and also the, the people who are sort of dealing with the law issues within South Africa, uh, especially maybe at, as high as the presidency, will have to uh, do something around these issues because clearly uh, uh, that's uh, now beyond ESCOM. But from our side, where we are able to identify people, we certainly will do so because because in some of our install uh, of our facilities, we do have cameras that can identify people if those facilities have also not been damaged. Summary dismissals too good for them. And um, your chief executive Pakawani Hawadebe went to go and get a, a memorandum today from workers. I think at Megawatt Park and had to be rescued by your security. He had to be rescued by police. He came under a bombardment of bottles uh, and uh, quite vigorous abuse on the day. Clearly, um, HR relationships aren't particularly good right now. Well, indeed, true, uh, those, uh, the things are falling apart, and uh, it's not uh, how the system should be at, at this stage. Things are falling apart. Elaborate on that, please. Well, essentially, well, what we're saying is the, the relationship between management and the and the workers generally is not good, especially around this particular issue of uh, um, wage increments. The offer that the management has put on the table clearly has been uh, rejected by the workers which is why uh, during the day when the, there was that delivery of the memorandum of, of demand, the tempers were very high, and unfortunately, as you correctly say, uh, Mr. Harabe had, uh, had to be sort of rescued uh, out of that situation. Has he backed down? He's committed to meet with workers. It looks like he's got a, a humiliating ca- uh, climb down on his hands. Well... The, the, the matter is now going to the CCMA, so, and we as ESCOM obviously will be there so that uh, this matter can be uh, ventilated uh, in the presence of an independent uh, adjudicator and hopefully we'll come uh, with some resolution there. Maybe also just to expand on this one, Bruce, we, we also, uh, 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 I would say, appreciate the support that we're getting from government. Government yesterday, through the Minister of Public Enterprises, met with the leadership of, uh, of CASATU and uh, NUM, 
and uh, I hear that uh, there are indications to, to meet with the other unions as well, like NUMSA, uh, uh, and, and probably also at some point with uh, Solidarity as well. So all of these measures, including the plans to meet with the Minister of Energy and the President, are aimed at making sure that uh, the, the tempers that are currently flaring are sort of uh, held, held to some low level, so that at least people can sit across the table and discuss and find a resolution. Is there any guarantee that today's load shedding is a once-off event or at least a short-term phenomenon that people are committing to come back to work tomorrow? Could this get extended? Bruce, unlike 2008 and 2014, this one is not a function of our inability to produce electricity, as in we did not adequately make uh, uh, preparations to, to supply electricity. This time around, you have a situation where people are deliberately uh, uh, sabotaging the plans that have been put in place, where trucks that are meant to go into this power station to deliver coal are being stopped. In fact, in, in one case, one of the trucks was hijacked, and then uh, a coal was dumped at the entrance of the station, essentially making sure that nothing goes in or out. So when you have those kind of incidents, so clearly it becomes a very serious of, uh, 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 situation, which is not necessarily directly comparable to what we used to have in 2014 and 2008. My thanks to Kulu this evening spokesperson at ESCOM. Busy night ahead for Kulu as ESCOM implements stage one load shedding. Some areas have had you know, unscheduled stoppages. and This is corruption. This is just the worst of strike action. You're perfectly entitled to protest. You're perfectly entitled to voice your disapproval. But by holding a nation hostage, you really do deserve to be taken out, lose your pension, lose your benefits. I feel very, very angry about this. I know that's probably not something that the CCMA would back, but boy, oh boy, sometimes you need tough action. Nazmira Muller, co-head of fixed income and investic asset management, things are falling apart, says Kulu Pasiwe, the spokesperson for ESCOM. That's terrifying. It is rather, Bruce. It is very worrying to listen to um, his words tonight. Okay, so where does this leave us as a country? We've got a a power utility that's antiquated, that has got uh, its overspending on uh, – well, not dysfunctional, but it's overspending on on antiquated equipment. The new power stations coming on stream, they're over – they're overdue. We've got a world that is changing its power mechanism. We've got a a business model that is so far stuck in the last century – and a workforce that thinks it's entitled to big increases, 15% is what unions are demanding. This looks like a standoff that could hamper us all winter. ESCO is probably the single biggest risk to the South African economy at this point in time. Over the course of the last 13 years, its debt burden has increased more than tenfold, while the volume of electricity it produces has gone sideways. It's not producing any more electricity now than it did in 2005, despite all this money spent, all this debt taken on, and despite the fact that its workforce has gone from 32,500 to 47,500 people over that period. I mean, this is a grossly inefficient dinosaur. I think that is one way to describe it. It's a it needs to cut its workforce. These are not um, people employed by a food retailer being paid two and a half thousand rands a month, which I have enormous sympathy for, and we need a minimum wage to resolve that. The average wage, if you just take total number of employees divided by workforce, which has distortions given past management salaries, but the average wage at estimates is 464,000 rands. 
464,000 average. We're going to go into the detail of that with Mike Schussler, the economist who's done some work on the detail of it, and we'll talk to him about that in about half an hour's time. But Nazmiru, you talk about ESCOM being the single biggest threat to South Africa's economy right now. Ratings agencies are looking at it. Its debt burden is, is going to be very hard to overcome. It is lethargic and inefficient. I mean, is there an elegant way out of this, or is this just a, going to be like pushing a 10-ton weight up a hill for the next 10 years for the country? I think there are ways to resolve it if there is the commitment to do it. And Telcom, ironically, provides the template um, for the solution. So let's think back to five, six years ago when... All of us were complaining about telecom all the time. Now, I think some of us complain about it some of the time. So there's a vast improvement in that. And you look at what the combination of Jabba Mabuza and um, the CEO um, have done at um, telecom in terms of the chairperson Jabba providing room for the CEO to actually run the company. You've seen headcount halve over that period. You've seen a huge pushback on suppliers in terms of managing costs. You've seen the company move into um, the 21st century in terms of what they need to do in terms of providing services that customers want. ESCOM needs to do the same thing. Most certainly does. Nazmira Muller, thank you. The co-head of fixed income at Investec Asset Management to South Africa gets a taste of load shedding all over again. 2008, 2014, and again now in 2018. Self-inflicted or inflicted at least by employees of ESCOM who've been deliberately sabotaging the network, changing the locks on the uh, on the substations in some cases, deliberately flicking the switches on some substations, and also preventing coal suppliers from getting to some power stations on a wintry Thursday night. Night. Team players, not so much. The Money Show. The Markets. Well, markets on the day had a pretty good day. The currency, for much of it, massively volatile after the U.S. raised rates last night. And then the European Central Bank uh, threw a new spanner into the works and said, you know what, by the end of the year, we're going to stop buying bonds, um, which is the bond buying program, which has been going for much of the last decade, has been pushing lots of cash, lots of liquidity into markets and has been making them really good places to be invested. And suddenly... The party feels like it's going to stop. Rudy Fandamadva. Rudy is a portfolio manager at Advice Works. Um, What does it mean? Well, Bruce, as you said, there's been an enormous amount of liquidity pushed into the financial system over over the the, the last, well, since since the, the financial crisis, really. It's a decade now. Yeah. It is, and, and that's largely what's been getting the economy going and specifically what's been pushing asset prices up so, so very strongly. Uh, and you know, it's not only been the... The well publicized that everybody knows about the you know the fed's been pumping money in as has the ecb but also from other other corners of the globe the japanese and the chinese have been very active the, the chinese very specifically have put in trillions of dollars into in, into the global system as well and and slowly that that liquidity is being withdrawn you know the u.s has started raising rates um and now the ecb is talking about stopping their bond, bond purchases so this the support for asset prices uh, and and the economies in terms of the easy money and low interest rates is slowly slowly starting to disappear, which which means that it, you know, we are at risk of, of somewhat of a reversal. Is this a little bit like going to visit a, a relative in ICU and standing on the oxygen pipe and wondering why they're waving their arms about? I mean, is that what's going to happen to markets? Well, it's certainly a risk, Bruce. Uh, you know, the we don't know how far it's going to go. So. 
the U.S. has indicated that they're going to continue raising rates. But you know, if we see that economy starting to stall, you could very well find them starting to reverse policy rather quickly and if, if markets come under pressure. And, and I, I do think we will see that, that they will uh, realize that they, they're possibly being too aggressive with, with rate hikes and you know, choking off a, a, a recovery earlier than they should have. But what the Americans have got is they've got inflation rising to 2.8%, the highest level in six years. They've got some growth coming through. Wage inflation is beginning to come through. If you look at all of the data points so far, they all suggest that it's back to normal and to normalize interest rates. You are, and you're good at this stuff, suggesting that perhaps they are pulling the trigger a bit too early. Possibly a little bit too aggressive, too early, Bruce. There are some positive indications. Retail sales are picking up, and a lot of the more recent positive data is most likely uh, on the back of, of the tax cuts that we've seen in the U.S., which which will certainly give give that economy a, quite a significant boost. But but you know how sustainable that is yeah. longer term uh, is questionable, and and the, the the amount of tightening that we're seeing is going to have the impact of making business more difficult uh, to finance uh, and growth more difficult to finance. Uh, so it it is going to, yeah, you know, it, it's a it's a deflationary. Issue. Okay, so we'll watch the space very closely. On the JSE today, no big outliers, although I was surprised to see how strongly financials and, and retailers performed considering yesterday's terrible uh, April retail sales numbers. Yeah, they, they were really poor, Bruce. And I think it's just a reaction to the currency that the US dollar did weaken a little bit. Uh, and I think there was people selling the fact, really, the expectation that, that they were going to raise rates uh, was realized and as a result took profit on, on the US dollar, which which gave us a little bit of breathing room. Uh, and I do think that the, possibly the, the the ECB talking about tapering from December was, was uh, later than possibly some people had expected. So, mm. so on the back of the currency and a recent quite severe sell-off, I think we just had a bit of a bounce. Really fun about her. He is a portfolio manager at Advice Works. This Cruxland Gin Hamper, this 2,000 Rand Cruxland Gin Hamper that I have in front of me with the Kalahari truffle extract in it is up for grabs this evening. For the question, the man who created M&Ms was allergic to what, Siobhan, in Rosebank? I think it was allergic to peanuts. It wasn't lactose. It wasn't chocolate. It wasn't the, the no candy one's crust. To chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they are, they battle through it. It's the one allergy we would all deny. Siobhan, you're absolutely That's right. Great. You're absolutely right. Two thousand rand uh, Cruxton gin hamper coming your way, courtesy of those nice people at KWV. Also, Cape Talk at seven o two. Yeah, the man who created M and M's. His name was Forrest Mars. Um, yes, Mars, and his name was Forrest. He was a child when his parents divorced. He hardly knew his dad, who ran a small sweet maker called Mars. Um, he then worked with his dad when they when he grew up, but they had a big disagreement on strategy. They wanted he wanted to go global. His dad was more conservative. They went their separate ways. And Forrest Mars travelled to the UK, where he created and invented the Mars Bar in 1933. And he returned only to the US when his father died. And then he took over the family business and later on merged his business, the Mars business, with the family Mars business and became a global success story. He created the peanut M&Ms, but he was never able to taste them. Imagine creating something so fantastic 
and never being able to taste your own creation because he would have died due to his nut allergy. So well done to Siobhan and Rosebank. She was the third person through. Third because we use the letters of gin. One, two, three letters there. She was the third person through to come with the correct answer. Forrest Mars, the inventor of the M&M, was allergic to his product, the peanuts. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Load shedding Thursday. It's quite depressing, isn't it? I've just had a call from home saying, yep, we've got load shedding. That's nice. Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, you, know, you start to feel quite gloomy about your, uh, about your sort of place in the world when you then sabotage is as a result of this. Um, Jody and Sandringham, uh, please reply, is the load shedding just for today or is it going to be long term? I still have lights and I'm concerned they will go off. Well, that's the concern here, Jody, and that's the power that the unions have got as they hold ESCOM over a barrel and you over a barrel journey me over a barrel it's the same barrel but it's not a barrel of fun not for a second um and here is yeah the standoff mcdonald says if pakamana hadeba was a skilled chief executive he should have told whoever advised him to give escom employees no salary increases this year that this was a suicide mission escom employees worked hard throughout the year and most of them met the performance targets and now they expect to be remunerated accordingly escom management cannot penalize their employees for the money that was squandered by the entity's previous leadership through the state capture project as most ESCOM employees had no involvement whatsoever in the state capture project. Fair comment. If Pakamani Khadebe does not change tack, he is going to plunge our country into a serious crisis due to his lack of foresight. Uh, is it Pakamani Khadebe alone? Is it a strategy of government? Is it a strategy of the board? Um, uh, is it the, the role of one person? Certainly going in was uh, a big risk and assuming that you could stand up against trade unions who I think have flexed their muscles today in a very convincing way. The reality is, and we're going to talk to Mike Schuster about this, McDonald, in just a little bit, in terms of relative to most people in South Africa, what staff at ESCOM earn, um, relative to what most people, the sort of benefits and perks that are in the hands of average ESCOM employees. And you've got to say, somebody, somewhere, sometimes, somebody has got to take one for the team. Um, and certainly the team at ESCOM has also got to shrink, like the team at SAA is going to have to shrink. The team in many uh, in government generally is going to have to, uh, to, to shrink because we simply can't as a country keep affording to pay people who are not adding sufficient value to a country that is on the edge of bankruptcy. That's the brutal reality, I'm afraid. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. In Cape Town, I'm told that uh, Pineland's power has gone out. Uh, lots of you very angry. Pierre saying disgusting that national key points can be hijacked. Workers have to be fired. Uh, load shedding in Tokai, I am told. Marina de Gama, that's near Tokai. Franchuk was off, Franchuk was on. Um, yeah, so getting a, a very clear indication that there most certainly is load shedding that has been implemented. Stage one load shedding. So if you remember your load shedding uh, your load shedding schedules from uh, many, many years ago. Those are the areas that uh, are vulnerable. Um, Cyril Dean load shedding as well. Yep, so lots of you very frustrated. Let's get a professional view this evening from the energy analyst, the partner at Mining and Energy Advisory, Ted Blom. Um, kind of expected, I suppose. I contacted my producers this morning to say, let's brace ourselves for some load shedding this evening based on what we were seeing on the streets and what we were seeing in terms of ESCOM workers. ESCOM seemed to have missed calculated this very, very dramatically. Uh, good evening. Yeah, Bruce, uh, unfortunately, it seems to be true. 
Um, you know, they've been, been fading very close to the wind for the last uh, four, four to five weeks. Um, based on their previous uh, misinformation, I called the load shedding as imminent, but it, and it's now sadly eventually happened. So I'm, I'm as disgusted as everybody else. And uh, I think this will cost the country dearly because this will not uh, not uh, go over very quickly. Now, you say that you, you've been forecasting load shedding for some time, which implies that the load shedding today is not because of sabotage. It's not because of an inability to generate enough electricity. I mean, that's, that's what ESCOM would have us believe. Um, they would say that this is all due to sabotage. You're saying that we've got a bigger problem than that? Um, well, they'll say it's sabotage because they've been uh, trucking cold in and out uh, the stations and the, the, the access has been blocked today. But, I mean, that's not the normal modus operandi of a coal operator. So it's been coming for a long time. All they needed is one more spoke to break or one more uh, um, straw on the camel's back and then they would be at this situation. I mean, it was inevitable. Uh, given that the maintenance hasn't been done properly, the coal procurement hasn't been done properly, and as, as far as I'm aware, as of today, there's still corruption inside ESCOM management that's not taken all the steps that it's required to wipe it out. Okay, so we're sitting with a, a, a far more serious problem than ESCOM would have us believe this evening. Um, the only way really to deal with this effectively, I suppose, is a political solution to it, because um, or, or do we need to give the management of ESCOM more time to, to get their house in order? Well, the problem is that, uh, you know, with respect to the, the president and his, and his team of advisors, they've appointed a new board, but they, they've appointed a novice new board. Uh, and and uh, so the guys are all on their first lap, so everything is a damn surprise for them. You know, they've got nobody there that's skilled. And, in fact, the, the senior management of ESCOM that, that's supposed to be skilled, uh, are, are many of them are corrupt. They're part of the people that are part of the previous regime. They haven't been cleaned out. So you've got a massive problem within ESCOM. I don't foresee... Stability returning to to the utility for quite a while yet. Until that, they, they've suspended seven people. Seven people did not steal fifty billion. I can assure you that there's many, many more people. So there's, there's an endemic problem. Until they sort the endemic problem, problem out, we're going to have all sorts of funny things still happening. Uh, so, are you suspecting that we will get more of this as winter progresses? That today may very well be as a result of sabotage and isolated incidents, and the fact that uh, coal suppliers may have been wet and short. Um, but we've got a far bigger problem looming on the ESCOM horizon. The organisation is not stable, and its current operations uh, uh, under the current regime are not sustainable. You know, uh, Bruce, uh, a couple of years ago, I was sitting in church, and the priest said to me, you know, if you walk along the edge, don't be surprised if you fall off. And that's exactly where we are. We can't walk and take the economy this close to the edge and then be surprised when we fall off. I mean, that's just, just not acceptable. That's not prudent management, and that's just not acceptable. Uh, not from an economy point of view, and not from a consumer point of view, because we pay. In fact, Eskom is now busy finishing off or trying to finish off two of the most expensive power generation units in Kusili and Madupi in the world. Yeah, they are. They're, they're, they're over budget twice. They are behind schedule by many, many years. And they're dealing with uh, the technology that's practically defunct in many parts of the world. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, this is the way the ship is in the wrong, the wrong direction. And it will take a massive exercise. It will take more than one or two people uh, to, re- uh, to correct this ship. And, I mean, I've been saying that to Eskom for quite a while. Uh, they've had people phoning into your station and calling me for a, for a discussion. Uh, those discussions have gone nowhere. They've evaporated. Uh, and really, until, until reality sets in, uh, don't be surprised if we have more of the same. I mean, I hate being a doomsday uh, forecaster, 
but uh, you know, he wants to be realistic. It's a big organization. It's the biggest company in the country. And you can't have a bunch of novices that are trying to operate the thing. Ted Blum, thank you. Energy analyst, partner at Mining and Energy Advisory, the biggest company in the country, the biggest risk to the economy, says Nazmira Mula. Um, a big staff compliment, too big, says Nazmira Mula. We'll talk to Mike Schuster, chief economist at economist.co.za, about how we deal with the big uh, elephant in the room, and that is the wage package that seems to have caused today's problems. The Money Show, FAQs. FAQs, so what exactly is it that uh, workers at ESCOM are paid? That is your question this evening. We had a figure earlier from Nazmira Mula, an average of 464,000 rand a year, which is way, Mike Schussler, chief economist at economists.co.za, above any other average in South Africa that I'm aware of. Are the numbers right? It sounds a bit low to me. Um, I think we're looking... It depends on where you look. If you look at the quarterly employment survey, it's definitely over half a million. Uh, if you look at the annual report, um, which uh, includes benefits that ESCOM pays on their behalf, such as pensions and medical aid, or part of pensions and part of medical aid, it's uh, around 700,000. Um, so it is one of the better paying uh, you know, firms in South Africa. There's probably... Uh, out of the sectors from the QES, of which there are 94, uh, we know that banking and stockbroking are the two that are paid uh, better, stockbroking being very small. Um, but also, we also know that ESCOM pays better than the municipalities that deliver electricity. So it's quite likely that ESCOM is going to be, uh, if they're not in third place, they might even be in second place behind the banking sector. Okay, so one of the highest paying sectors in uh, South Africa is ESCOM, one of the highest paying companies in South Africa. Not everybody um, earns the average. I mean, an average is a fact of high paid professionals, no, engineers, people who, who keep the lights on, literally. Senior management yeah. and that type of, yeah. Look, I mean, we're looking at, uh, we don't know what the median is. Uh, at ESCOM, they aren't very transparent with their salaries. Uh, we do know that uh, from the um, la- uh, la- uh, labor market dynamics that uh, the electricity sector has a high median. But, uh, you know, that's also questionable because very often when you ask people, they don't always give you their gross salaries. They very tend to give you their net salaries. So they forget about the taxes and they forget about, uh, for example, even loans that are taken, like mm. home loans that are taken off. Uh, beforehand. But nonetheless, electricity is uh, one of the better paying sectors. And if we compare that, for example, to the median of an employer, we do know that the median of an employer is lower than the electricity sector's median. So that also says something to us. All right. So we've got people who are being paid a lot of money. Do we? Can we justify at all whether or not the wage packages that are paid to people who work at ESCOM are justified or not? Or are they way out of kilter for the service that is provided? I think in a way it's become way out of kilter. I'll tell you why. Because there's less electricity produced than a decade ago. Um, there's uh, about a third more staff than a decade ago. And that says to me um, ESCOM ended up with too many people and uh, you end up with paying a big wage bill um, which is over 33 billion at the moment uh, or was 
over 33 billion at the end of for the year to end March 2017. Uh, you need to rethink that quite a bit more. Mike Schuster, thank you, Chief Economist at Economists.co.za. Grumpy, that's a good word to summarise the money show this evening, but uh, give us some light, shed some light on the matter. We need some light. Yes, we do. We'll do some light after Eyewitness News at 7. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today is the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. If your lights start coming on and other lights start going off, I've forgotten how lurching works. It is, does it go for the entire sort of three-hour period between five and eight? Do you go for a two-hour period? I've forgotten exactly how it works. Um, but, uh, yeah, if your lights start coming on this evening, let us know. 31702-31567. Stage one load shedding implemented. Uh, across various parts of the country this evening and uh, it is all in response says ESCOM to sabotage says Ted Bloom the energy expert says look this is only a question of time the place is being mismanaged it doesn't have enough professionals who know what they're doing um, and then uh, Mike Schuster telling us in the first hour of the show this evening that ESCOM is possibly the second best industry well electricity provision and hence ESCOM it's a monopoly um, the best industry in which to work in South Africa because it has amongst the highest highest average wages in the country. No wonder there is a desire by government to cut the wage bill, either through headcount, and the first step of that is to say to workers, zero percent increase. In other words, if you don't like it, um, you can choose to take your skills and your enterprise elsewhere. Um, that is the subtle message there. Today, workers at ESCOM, however, have said, you say zero percent, we say no. We don't refuse to accept it. And huge pressure being brought to bear on ESCOM over the day and that that pressure playing out on the electricity grid this evening with stage one load shedding. Welcome to the past. 702, The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. I don't know if this is going to please you more or make you more depressed. I'm not sure that this is the right topic for uh, for an evening like this where people are starting to feel really grumpy about load shedding. I don't want to get you down because stock markets actually had a pretty terrible performance so far this year. I'd like you to quickly SMS me on 31702 and 31567. The word best and then tell me the best performing share on the JSE so far this year. And then give me worst performing share on the JSE so far this year. And just look at the top 50 shares by value. David Shapiro, stockbroker, deputy chairman of Saspen Securities. Without giving any numbers just yet, David, let's give everyone a chance just to send through <laughs> their calculations, their guesses, whatever it is there might be. Um, but, yeah, it's been a, a, a weird 2018. It all looked so certain and so easy uh, on the 1st of January as we, we, we headed towards a new dawn. And stock markets, actually, there'd be more losers than winners amongst the top 30 or 40 shares in the market. There have been, Bruce, and uh, in fact, uh, if, if you look at a list, I just take out, I love to look at the top 50 capitalized stocks, you know, with, with, without regard to um, the indices and that, and see what really performed, what didn't perform. What did perform and where the performance has come as really, as a group, has been the segment that led us down in 2016, which has been resources. So there's been a big turnaround in resources, a lot of that driven by the global economy, not necessarily the South African economy. 
uh, resource prices have improved dramatically. We've seen the oil price turn up. So that's given us an underpin. What hasn't given us an underpin, funny enough, is all, are also international stocks, Bruce, but those are the old economy stocks, things like British American Tobacco, beer companies, and so on. But the most disappointing segment this year for me has been um, the financials. We've seen a massive turnaround negatively in, in a lot of the insurers and uh, to an extent the banks, one or two banks, have managed to cross the advantage line. But then, Bruce, when we go into the mid and small caps, uh, a lot of selling there, a lot of, a lot of uh, losses there that have surprised us. And amongst favorites, you know, among favorites that have actually uh, led the market up in previous years or been followed by punters, by investors quite dramatically. And now, with the currency relatively stronger for much of the first quarter of this year, mm-hmm. um, it surprises me that the resources counters have done as well as they have because they are massively vulnerable to fluctuations in the currency. If you look at the top two performers, uh, best Mediclinic or BHP, worst Steinoff. Steinoff doesn't even appear on the list. To the no, person who's just no. said that, Steinoff <laughs> is relegated to. Uh, it's not even in any the first, second, or third division. It's in the I don't know the uh, in the primary schools division nowadays. Um, but yeah, Mediclinic and BHP, um, best Mediclinic, uh, no, but Netcare has done rather nicely, and mm. BHP has done even better. It's the best performing share. BHP and Anglo is actually the best performing shares of the year so far. Yeah, uh, Anglo's up a massive 25%. And what's surprising is that uh, Platinum hasn't done well at all. And, and Anglo's has a very big exposure to Platinum. What's held it up, and, and the strange thing, again, have a look at this. If you look at Anglo's at the top, which is up 25%, if I look towards the bottom, Kumba, in which Anglo's has a very big stake, uh, down um, down about 17, 18%. So you've got these uh, anomalies that, that do appear. Um, also, I think I'm, I'm trying to look for uh, the, their Angler Platts. Angler Platts, in which Anglers has a very big stake, also down about 6%. So it shows you the influence of um, the, the, the non-South African assets. But, Bruce, it's another thing. Ignore the underlying. What What's happened is, is that the... Um, the, the resources, particularly the diversifiers, have attracted a lot of attention for, uh, you know, for, for the growth in the global economy, where prices are going, and also very good management. All those companies that led us down, you know, 10 years ago or something, or even six, seven years ago, management has been replaced. Mark Kudafani, I think, do an incredibly good job uh, as uh, the CEO of, of BHP Bulletin. You know, they cut back on expenditure, unnecessary expenditure. So that looks like the segment, and it's still a very strong underpin for going forward. You know, there's no there's no sense that uh, we've seen the top of that market yet. Mm. So I think that's going to lead us. Uh, that will lead the market, even though the market generally is. We're down about 2% from the beginning of the year. But I think that's where the swing's going to come. Castle, another one. Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting is um, mm-hmm. corporate activity, positive corporate activity being rewarded, negative corporate activity being punished. Um, the two extremes of this one, Netcare up 16% mm-hmm. on the year, getting rid of mm-hmm. General Healthcare Group in the UK, getting rid of that drain. And perhaps the disappointing one, Woolies, we knew it was going to be bad simply because um, they keep getting the life sucked out of them by David Jones in Australia. Um, and, and that's a, a corporate story. Those are management decisions matter yeah. when it comes to valuations of companies. 
Oh, it does. And how it does. The top performing retailer um, is Clicks, who just consistently give you good numbers. They're very expensive. They trade at very high multiples. That's a multiple to their earnings. But but still, they're, they're way up, and they're up about 11%. But, of course, Woolworths, uh, under quite a bit of pressure. Now, a lot of the other retailers don't make it into the uh, top 50 shares. We, we give them, they punch a lot more above their weight in terms of um, uh, coverage and so on, but they're not, they're not really big. ShopRite did well. That was up about 4%. That held its own. But I, I haven't got a list of the other, uh, of some of the other um, uh, retailers and that. Of course, the worst, uh, we have to mention the biggest underperformance have been the, uh, property companies, a lot of pressure on Fortress B and uh, Resilient. And funny enough, um, Nepi as well, Nepi Rockcastle as well, also taken down by association. Yep, no, it's huge, huge pressure coming through in those ones. I mean, Nepi Rockcastle's down 40% so far this year. Tiger Brands, again, um, when you blunder, you get clapped um <laughs> and, and uh 20, 30% down on tiger brands which it, it's good to see the market does punish um behavior which is unbecoming it's, and and sure and uh, that's results driven that's also because of pressure on their margins um what I, what what I do want to bring out and the ones that disapp- when i say disappointed me is that this game which is um also came out with very disappointing results. Now, this was hot. Everybody wanted to own the shares. Uh, they pushed these shares up dramatically last year. That's down 20 since the beginning of the year. We const- constantly see it coming down 24%. There's another company, Blue Label, which took over Cell C. Unbeknown, share reversed 26 27%. Investors concerned about whether they'll be able to continually fund the expansion of, of, of Cell C. Discovery. Hot favorite last year, uh, up to 180 rand. That share has fallen back to 140. That's been uh, also a big disappointment. That's come back quite dramatically as well um, over the last year. So some of these businesses, you know, we haven't seen them retreat. They were um, uh, unbeknown to us or unwatched. And then, then the best, Curo and Stadia. You know, Curo for years led the, um, led the market up. Everybody loved it. But I think it has just overreached itself in terms of where people were bidding it up, and that's come back quite a lot as well uh, this year. David Shapiro, thank you. Just some nice observations of some big moves on the market this year. Hugely divergent market. I mean, they, if you'd invested in, if you look at the top 40 companies on the JSE, if you'd invested in the winner, Anglo-American, you'd be up 25%. If you'd invested in the loser, which is a subsidiary of Anglo-American, you'd be down 18%. I mean, that is a gap of, I'm going to let myself down here, 43% or thereabouts. I mean, that's the difference in your money. You'd be 43% worse off had you invested in Kumba than had you gone into parent Anglo-American. That's a very substantial performance. And had you bought into uh, the Nepi Rockcastle story last year, your 100 rand would be worth less than 60. At Tiger Brands, your 100 rand would be worth 70. And uh, at Aspen Pharmacare, your 100 rand would be worth about 95 rand or thereabouts. A lot of South African companies massively volatile. Vagaries of the of the currency, vagaries of the, the promise of the Cyril Spring and the Ramaphoria. And just the brutal reality is that investors are incredibly fickle creatures when it comes to putting their money into companies. The Money Show. Personal Finance. Sabine, Kim Polkiter has been in studio with us uh, numerous times. She's a certified financial planner. She is a big believer in your attitude towards money, your philosophy towards money. She wrote a book in... 
2015 retirement I mean, the meaning of retirement, the meaning of your money. She runs a personal website. You can get the details of that at kimporchite.co.za. And she really, you, you quite, I don't want to say aggressive, you engaging, you you challenging in, in the sort of conversations that you expect people to engage in when it comes to their approach to money, Kim. I am evening, Bruce. Uh, I would call the word... Aggressive is the wrong word. Sorry, I was it's a say terrible the, word. The word I often use to describe myself is passionate. Yeah, some people that can come. You show your teeth and stuff when you're being passionate, and it, it can be seen as aggressive. But no, you are you are very forthright. You are um, you don't pull punches when it comes to the importance of these discussions around money. Tonight, it's about discussing money with kids. The most important conversations you know, most families can have, frankly. Totally agree with it, and and most of us don't have these conversations because we think it's a taboo subject we should be having with our children. But who's going to have them if we don't? Okay, so what is the first conversation a parent needs to have with a child at what age about money other than, no, do you think it grows on trees? Yeah, that's all those money messages that I get to hear about from all my retired clients that at the age of 70 are still telling me what their parents told them when they were five. So the messages stick, and that's important because you can either reinforce positive messages about money and the empowering aspects of money or you can do the what do you think it grows on trees conversation um, and that almost has a negative implication for, for many people. And, and yet those negative ones seem to be the ones that stick the most. <laughs> you honestly would think when, we, when I'm helping people to plan their retirements that they wouldn't remember exactly what happened to them when they were younger. You said what is the most important conversation to be having and I want to say it's, it's less about the conversation often and it's more about our behaviour. Do you know that children, I mean, you know, the children are watching us all the time. And it's, yeah. mm, and it's our behavior around it. And it's, it's sometimes about the things that we say when we think the children aren't even listening. So, yes, there's those beliefs and those, those are big. But there's also those actions of coming home every night and complaining about the work we have to do because we need to be earning this money. And we, we, we start giving children this, this bad relationship with money because of issues that we're dealing with. I'm so guilty. I feel so bad. I don't know if I can carry on this conversation. I need to go and say sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, but, but how do we enforce positive messages around money? So there's some stress at home and you're working very hard and you're burning the candle at both ends and you, and you say to your kids, I'm doing this for you. Because that's a common uh, line that lots of people will tell us is that you know, their parents sacrificed so much for them and they were never home. But boy, oh boy, they did their best to bring home a crust. Bruce, don't you often find yourself with the children saying the things your parents said to you that you, you, you promised yourself you were never going to say? And those are, that's one of those kind of conversations. So I um, think it's better to have these conversations with our children when we're not in that stress mode. So it's times when we are more relaxed and we can actually have informed conversations with them as opposed to those emotional, irrational ones. And I think give that's me, when we're having better conversations with our children. Give, Give me practical examples of positive conversations one should be having with children around money. I think there's, you know, we can obviously be talking about the economy and compound interest, and that all sounds very sexy and what we should be doing. But maybe talking around our values. So if we're with our family and we start explaining to them that we are going to all work towards going on a holiday, so we're going to go without a few things so that we can have our holiday. I think that's important because it takes away that entitlement. Because if children are seeing us as the ATM and we're just handing out the money, what 
behavior are we actually teaching them around money? Money is an infinite resource. There's plenty of it. And we can do whatever we do because we deserve it. Um, and that's a very dangerous and destructive um, long-term lesson, surely. And uh, that, but don't you find as parents what we're doing is we often, we want to be the, the, the saviors and the providers. So we, that's how we come across with our children. But we're really not doing them a favor. Whereas if we're teaching them more practical ways of, and I know this gets to be boring, but that we need when we give them the allowance that they need to be saving a portion of it giving a portion of it away, and then having fun with a portion, we'll start getting the right patterns and behavior in place for them. And later they'll thank us as opposed to us always giving them and then them not understanding how to get it for themselves. Now, the guys at the money school had a great uh, box which they were, were providing um, and it had precisely three bottles in it and kids were encouraged to decorate the bottles and things and um, in that you would, you would take the money that you got, whether you got your 10 rand, your 10 one rand coins and you would apportion it. You want to give one rand away, put it into the giveaway box uh, bottle. You want to save three rand, put three rand into the, into the save bottle and six rand, well, that's your spending money. Go and have fun with it. Um, and, and that, to my mind, was one of the simplest and most elegant um, illustrations for children of that mechanism. But then as the parent, you're the one who's got to administer that and make sure that everyone's sticking to the agreements that you, you hatch up front. And, and the whole thing is also when we want to give allowances without our children doing anything for it. So I think there's also got to be discussions around how do you earn your allowance? And when we're giving you allowance, you know, are you doing what you should be doing to get it and stopping to give it when we're not doing what, we, what they should be doing? But and then you, you come up against a household philosophy, for example, Kim, where you say, hold on a second, but to live in this house, to be part of this family, you're expected to do the following things. We don't pay you to do that. We don't pay you to tidy your room. We don't pay you to take your dishes to the sink, to wash the dishes, to stack the dishwasher, whatever it might be that mm. you have in your home. That's just, that's, you know, that's the bare minimum that you have to do. How does one you know, send that message through that this is you're part of a community here of interdependent souls versus one that says, oh, but I'm not taking that plate to the sink unless you give me 50 cents. In your house, it may be five rand, but we're cheapskates. Oh, yes, but I, I think it's different because if we're not giving them those allowances, so however we work it out, because if we're not giving them, how are we teaching them how, how to manage it? And the children that I meet later as adults, and when I speak to them, the ones that didn't get allowances are the ones that really don't understand how it works. So whether you're giving it for jobs, I mean, I've spoken to some people that are given to their children for certain marks that they get. There's different behaviors. And I think you work it out in your family. You work out by yeah. having a conversation with your family and, and not saying how other people are doing it, but working it out how it works for your family. And understand that you might do it differently for different kids because different things motivate different people. And believe it or not, those small people in your house are people. Exactly. And with different personalities. I mean, I have three children. I think I brought them up the same way around money. But when I ask them the questions and I watch their behaviors, even though we've brought in these kind of principles, they all three of them are doing it completely differently. So, yes, you need to be te treating them as individuals, and at the same time, yeah, learning just to have these conversations. I really see so many times when I speak to people that they haven't had the conversations and the family's memories and beliefs around money have actually come from fighting 
or have come from watching their parents suffer. And so that's why they, they, they've got this bad relationship with money. I mean, number one reason for divorce that's coming out more and more is around not having these money conversations in times when your relationship's going well and waiting until you're fighting to be having them. And, yeah, it, it destroys families and it destroys relationships and it is preventable. Um, it courageous, doesn't have to be, yes, exactly. No, yeah. And all this stuff is preventable, but sometimes it can be hard. And a lot of families, especially if you bring your own baggage into a relationship or bring your own baggage into a family environment and your kids are, 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 are wanting the Xbox and your kids are wanting the iPad because Johnny's mommy's daddy's uncle's auntie bought him an iPad, you know, the peer pressure, uh, as Trevor Mandel would put it when he was finance minister, keeping up with the Kumalos can be treacherous. And maintaining those values around money is so central and so core to everything every family should be doing all the time. Exactly. And, and I think also doing things with your family that don't involve money. I mean, having fun and doing some kind of forms of, of, of give back where you're actually using your time. Also teaching children a lot more around the place of money and the place of their value and their value not being tied into whether they've got the latest Xbox or that, that new pair of jeans that they've got to have. Kim Portgieter, always a joy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming through for us this evening. Kim Portgieter is a personal financial planner. She is also uh, has her own website, kimportgieter.co.za, and uh, Kim Portgieter this evening here on The Money Show. The Money Show. Small business. <laughs> oh, oh, so now, so now it's a good time to come back. Now it's a good time to go. You go off to America. You don't phone. You don't write. You don't uh, send a postcard. You don't, don't do anything. And now you come back and expect it to be normal. <laughs> Bruce, that's very unfair. <laughs> I know. It's very that's unfair a- because in my head, I'm still at lunchtime. Oh, you are good. Yes. So you get it's, it's, it's all yeah, your This face. is going to be a long show. <laughs> now listen, you went to the Groco conference. This yes. was part of Business Accelerators with Ned Bank, and you took uh, two winners, one from Cape Town, one from Joburg, and you went to this Groco conference. You went to New Orleans. You uh, flew business class. You had you were treated like kings. Um, did you actually learn anything useful? Yeah, we eventually did. <laughs> <laughs> so we learned that it's a seven and a half hour flight to Dubai. There's um, a lounge over there, second to nothing I've ever seen. It's got sharp facilities and all the good things. We stayed there for four hours. We then hopped onto a 13 and a half hour flight to New York. Um, we then landed in New York and packed everyone into a cab and rushed off to Little Italy, walked all the way up Broadway, we did all of that in about three hours flat, exhaustedly walked back into New York and flew down to a sweltering, hot, humid, clammy, vibrant 24-hour city called New Orleans. Uh, which was quite remarkable. Is it, like, it's like, is it like it is in the movies? Is it uh, full of carnivals and mad people and lots of uh, cool music and you sort of expect to bump it to Louis Armstrong on the, on the pavement? Yeah, literally. It literally is. You know, there's a street over there called Bourbon Street. And Bruce, yep. the bars don't have front doors. You, you, the bars never lock. They never close. They are 365, 24-7-hour businesses. And it was fascinating. We did a very, very detailed study on how you differentiate yourself in such a competitive space and place. And the net result of the differentiation, the net result of this deep, deep, deep study that we did was that it's completely... You went to a pub crawl. <laughs> you, went, no, you went to a pub crawl, yeah. No, it was a deep, deep study, a deep academic study with, yeah. with serious intent and very serious list of questions and surveys that we conducted. 
And the net result of it all is that it doesn't really matter to differentiate yourself because on a bad day, about 250,000 people walk up and down that street in 24 hours. And on a weekend, around 700,000 people walk up and down the street. And to put it into perspective, it's about an 800, 900 meter long street. The business that gets done there is just beyond beyond anything imaginable. If any of the big shopping malls over here, be it Sandton City, wherever it might be, boast footprint, they know nothing. Boy, yeah. Bourbon Street was quite something to witness. And, and but but does that mean that anybody in the in the street is average? That anybody in the street is poor at what they do? I mean, you say there's no need to compete Absolutely. because you've got a captive market. Absolutely, um, are, are they good? Uh, no. No, no, there was, a, there was a wide variety of quality. You know, some people differentiate themselves on the types of cocktails they make. So there's a cocktail there called the Hurricane, ha, 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 after Kat, yeah. Hurricane Katerina, which, which left that space absolutely devastated. Um, they have music as a differentiator. Some people do blues, some people do rock, some people do jazz. Um, some people, a lot of them have ambassadors which walk out of the bar onto the street dressed differently, but behaving in a certain way to try and draw crowds into the particular bars themselves. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because there's so much demand and there's so much traffic that once your bar's full, the bar next to you is going to survive. And once that one's full, the next one will fill out. And really, those businesses operate. Honestly, when I said three, four o'clock in the morning, from what I read in the book, Bruce, those <laughs> bars course. are full. Yeah, and, and what your and your, what your travelling companions must have told you, because you're a, you're a, you're a, a very disciplined sort. Um, but but in New Orleans, in terms of, I mean, it's a tourist business, is it not? I mean, it's there. Was the conference Groco? Was that actually in New Orleans itself? Yeah, it was in the Marriott Hotel. Um, they've got a conference facility over there, so it was literally two streets away from from um, a Bourbon Street. Uh, it was a conference that had about eight, nine hundred business owners sitting there from all sorts of shapes and sizes and all different stages of their business life cycles. Um, so it was a very, very widely represented group of people from a sector point of view. And there were people there from the West Coast, the East Coast, the Great Lake regions, the Midwest, everywhere right the way through um, the United States. And about probably 15% of the crowd was international from different parts of the world coming through. How relevant then was what was going on at GroCo to the 15%? Well, it was very much around American-style business. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that you can gain. The, the biggest benefit, Bruce, was in effect going into environment and hearing a completely different approach to how businesses are built, how businesses are sold, how businesses raise funding, how businesses gain exposure. The environment in the U.S. is is the most undoubtedly competitive environment I think anyone can ever wish to or hope to face. If you really want to test your mettle and see what you're worth, that's the place that will make or break you. Did that excite you or did it terrify you? If you looked at it and you said, hold on a second, but if uh, South Africa works and we get competition going and we get real activity going in the, in the economy, I mean, our banks, for example, think they're terribly competitive amongst each other. Um, every business in South Africa looks at the person down the road and thinks, oh, we've got competition, but they've not seen anything like the scale of competition you saw. Did that excite or terrify you? No, it absolutely excited me. And the main reason for it is this. You know, if we talk about corporate competition, so in South Africa, when a small, medium business comes up with a bright idea, they go to market, they prove traction, they prove value in the idea. They then say, right, there's a corporate offering over here. Mostly what happens is when you present to the corporate, the corporate thinks first and foremost, well, why do we really need you? Can we do it ourselves? You know, 
What's your price? They start to squeeze and pressurize you. Then decisions are delayed and delayed and delayed. And a corporate sale can take anywhere from six months up to two and a half years. What's interesting about the states, and especially let's talk about the banking environment. You know, after New Orleans, I was in Chicago for a week. And in that environment, I had 16 banks make offers to do business in a sense. 16 different banks all competing with each other. And the approach that I experienced over there, Bruce, was one that said, okay, you claim to do this. You claim to be good at it. You claim to have produced results in whatever it might be. Let's test the hypothesis of what you're saying. Let's see that there's value over there. Right, Monday morning, can you begin? And can you do it for us because you have developed expertise in it and we need to race ahead of our competitors? Because if we don't, I myself will get fired. Yeah, I mean, and here you are coming from an environment where you're lucky that, you know, you might get one bank to return your call or two. Maybe they'll return your call. If three return your call and one is kind of interested in what you've got to do, you're grateful in South Africa. Here you've got 16 banks vying for your business, all claiming to offer a differentiated offering. And it, it's quite perplexing when you, you're having to, uh, when you're having to take on all of the information that's being presented to you. Very, very definitely. But what's so remarkable is that you can, you can really craft and niche out the ideal partners to support your type of business activity and the environment that lends itself to it. You know, the, the accessibility of technology, for example, depending, irrespective of what business you're going to get involved in, you can go from zero to 100 kilometers in the first two, three days of establishing a business over there because the level of support for a business based in an area of capability within a sector, within an industry, there are so many service providers to help you in that sector, in that industry, get ahead fast and furiously that your, your, your array of choice is quite remarkable. Yeah. And then the deals that get done around it, Bruce, are remarkable. Let's talk about those in a moment because you had 51 meetings in how many days? Yeah, 58 meetings in 14 days. Oh, sorry, forgive me for underselling you. 58 <laughs> meetings in how many days? Uh, a week in New Orleans and a week in Chicago. How on earth do you remember anything? Pablo Fatili is more on what it's taught him to help South African businesses do better watching one of the world's, what well, probably is the world's most robust, most competitive business environment, the United States, where he went to the GroCo conferences with two, the two winners from the Nedbank Business Accelerators competition. It's blown Pablo's mind and he's blowing ours this evening. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show. Small business. So how much of what Pablo Fatidi's learned on his gallivanting, his jaunt, his broadening experience, that's what it should be. Maybe his, his case study par excellence of the United States business environment. How much of what you saw and learned was new to you, Pablo? Because you, you like the American environment, you like the cut and thrust of it, you like the way they operate, you, you're inspired and motivated by it. Did you learn much new in your 58 meetings in eight days? I learned that the way we do business here is very different to the way that we do business over there, that the way that one would do you, business you, over you, there. You, you knew that already, yeah. Yes. Um, I learned, I'll tell you the cleverest thing I learned, Bruce, the cleverest thing I learned. I looked at the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. And New Orleans is very different to the rest of the United States in that it's where some of the earliest immigrants came. Most people arrived there in the very early 1800s. 
And I visited four family businesses that were in their fourth, fifth, and sixth generation. And it was a fascinating account of how these businesses emerged and how they started. And nonetheless, in the French Quarter, which is a region within New Orleans, it's the only area that wasn't flooded out by Hurricane Katrina. So the rest of New Orleans was absolutely devastated, devastated. They procured about $250 billion from the federal government in order to rebuild New Orleans. And very cleverly and very strategically and very nefariously decided to focus most of that effort in the areas of New Orleans that had the potential for positive rehabilitation, as they called it. And positive rehabilitation was these are the areas where people who have gotten their act together can stay and remain and play and live and be. There's an area called uh, Ward 9 of New Orleans, which has been left absolutely shattered. There's been no rehabilitation at all. And the poorest of the poor at that point in time who were living there have had to migrate out of New Orleans and have gone into Georgia and Atlanta, all the way up to Chicago, in fact. So Hurricane Katrina was used very nefariously and very strategically by those in power over there to, in effect, lift the level and lift the grade of New Orleans's commercial opportunities. So they gentrified New Orleans. They gentrified New Orleans yeah. using a hurricane. It, 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 I mean, it was absolutely architected. It was quite remarkable to witness. But here's the thing that really impressed me. Local business people, the people who had strong investments in the environment, these fourth, fifth generation businesses, decided that they had to be unified around rebuilding New Orleans. And the narrative around what New Orleans represents from a tourism point of view was absolutely consistent through every single business. Secondly, they reached into their communities and they found very colorful characters, both black, both white, both male, both female. And they adopted these colorful characters and turned them into, let's call it, shop ambassadors or brand ambassadors. And I'll give you a great example. There's something called a po'boy, which is effectively a sandwich. It is a baguette, typically a foot or a foot and a half long, and it has shrimp and alligator and all sorts of stuff put into it, and it's all very tasty and delicious. And this particular sandwich shop called Melba's Po'boys, which was established straight after Hurricane Katrina on a very derelict piece of land with a whole lot of broken houses around it in a very poor neighborhood, has gotten to a point now where it has three specific ambassadors. These are characters, individuals that have been dressed in a particular way, that have been given particular scripts, that are remarkably eloquent, that live in po'boys itself, in Melba's po'boys. And they go out from time to time in order to create attraction, to create story, because in the United States of America, if you cannot get media behind you, you remain invisible for mm. eternity. And the way that they used the communities in and around them, the investments they made in the most immediate vicinity of the community to create story, positive story, that would appeal to media in order to gain exposure for their businesses and brands was masterful. And I've never seen that anywhere in the world so masterfully done. Fame is important. I mean, yeah, you, you become famous and then you trade off the back of that fame. You've spoken about competition. The funding of American businesses versus what you're used to seeing. I mean, we're taught that this is a much harder environment. It's a much harder environment from a competitive point of view, but it's a much looser environment from a funding point of view. So there are two, there are two types of funding that I certainly have experienced and witnessed there. On the West Coast of the United States, you've got all the startup funding, the very early stage let's call it incubator, accelerator-type funding. And, and in many ways, Bruce, in, in my view, my personal view, 
I call that roulette funding. It really is spin the wheel. Let's put the, let's put some money on black or red or number thirty seven or fifteen or whatever the case is, because those portfolios are built very aggressively. They're built very very large. They typically have four, five, six hundred investments in the portfolio. These businesses are all within their first year or two years of establishment. And the kind of deal is something along these lines. We'll put $20,000 down, and you can do a fair amount of, of, you can do quite a bit with $20,000. We'll put $20,000 down, we'll take between 6 and 12%. We'll put you on a couple of seminars, and then good luck, buddy, go and make it work. You know, I'm, I'm holding thumbs for you. But don't bother me because I'm involved in a portfolio of 500 of you, and I'm going to wait for the one rocket ship to take off. That creates a massive investment bubble in my view. On the East Coast, it's a lot more conservative. And I'll give you one of the, the fascinating examples I came across. There's a brand there called Harry's. And Harry's is effectively a new competitor for Gillette and Schick, which own and dominate the male, the male shaving uh, market, the male grooming market. They're very big. It's, it's direct mail order stuff, yeah? Yes. It's, it's, Harry's has grown phenomenally well. They're a business that is six years old, and they have received two rounds of $100 million each on a six-year-old business. The funders that have gone in behind there have taken a view that the time has come to shift two, three, four, five percent market share away from Gillette and Schick, which dominate almost on an exclusive basis the male grooming market. Part of the $100 million was established to vertically integrate Harry's. In other words, to ensure that they own everything from source of manufacture all the way through to retail and distribution. And through that, they then have full control over the quality, yeah. full control over the experience, and most importantly, full control over the cost. They then have them branched with the second $100 million investment into Walmart, into Costco, and have gone full stream uh, uh, retail. And that's a business that's six years old, Bruce. With over, with over two and a half billion rands of investment in it. You're like an MBA student, aren't you? You're telling us that uh, you are ready to, to tell us stories like this for years, courtesy of your mini MBA that you've taken, uh, undertaken in the United States. More tales <laughs> next week? Fantastic. Awesome. Pablo Fatidis, Auric Business Accelerator. I was going to say a fresh back from the United States, but he, he's back. That's something. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Money Show done and dusted. I hope your power's back and hopefully everybody at ESCOM goes back to work tomorrow and they manage to sort out. It's going to be a big job. Exactly what needs to be dealt with in order to ensure power supply. That's it from The Money Show. Good night.